Hey friends, this is the No Water Methodist podcast, and I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the preacher here, have been for eight and a half years, and I've been preaching in that time, and you'd think I'd feel like I covered it all, but really there is a lot. This last Sunday, I preached on Obadiah for the first time I can remember. Um, it was my first time really taking time to dive in and figure out who the Edomites were and why Obadiah cares and why it is that we might be expected to care today. I, I get into some topics on this one that a lot of people don't realize they're swimming in. In the Christian world, you know, we have to figure out what to make of the Jews and what it is that's going on in the Middle East right now and how it is that the Bible does or does not intersect with that. And that's something that I've been intimidated by as a believer and a not very smart man. Um, but I finally dug in this week, and um, I got a lot out of it. I, I, I know a lot of other people did as well, so I hope you stick with me. Um, I'll require to use your brain, but you know, that's a fair thing to do. That's what Jesus does too. So, um, uh, just want to invite you to, to engage your faith in earnest as you're listening to this. I know most of our audience is probably directly connected to the church, but there are also people abroad that listen to me for some reason. And we're about to begin on the season of Advent and Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas day. And it's a time of anticipating the second coming of Christ Jesus, the parousia, as it's talked about in the Greek. And it's something that I take very seriously, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of a, a body, the Global Methodist Church, that takes it very seriously as well. Christians don't believe um, that we are going to create the kingdom of God on earth. We believe that the kingdom is already here in some sense, but there is a day coming when Christ will bring his kingdom. Uh, and he will declare war on all worldly forces, including Satan himself, and he will be victorious, and we will be with him. So that's something that, that we anticipate, and then, of course, the climax of that, if we make it through and Christ doesn't come first, is Christmas Day, when we remember the first advent of Christ, when he came in the flesh, so that he could pay the price for us that, that we couldn't pay. So there's a lot to be thinking about, and this is a time when the world makes rabid bids for our attention and affections that we just have to rebuke and renounce because Christ needs to be the center of our lives because he's the center of all creation, and that's what it looks like, uh, a life well-lived, a sober and serious life. So um, I just invite you to be sober in this time you spend with me on God's Word going through Obadiah and I would ask for you to make a serious commitment to up your faith in this time. It's a very important time. Every day is important, but this season in particular, very important. So step up in your faith. God will meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. Enjoy. Today we're talking through the book Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And it, um, well, that's why we're doing it today. We only had one week before Advent begins, and Advent, we uh, change the order of worship and the feel. A lot is different for a few weeks as we go through Advent and Christmas together. I needed something short, but also I think this is timely because this is a book that is a one chapter long, and it invades against the Edomites. I had a friend reach out to me a few weeks ago saying, this is about the modern-day situation of Israel and the Palestinians. He says the Palestinians are the descendants of the Edomites. I hadn't heard this before. I grew up in a religious tradition that I think would be considered uh, covenant theology. I'm going to start with the big picture, provide two different theological frameworks that Christians participate in, and then I'm going to read 
through this chapter, and then I'm going to tell you a lot of information. Um, so here's, here's the two basic frameworks for interpreting Old Testament scripture and prophecy. Covenant theologians believe that God, yes, gave multiple covenants throughout the biblical witness. However, each new covenant built off the last one and supplanted it, took its place so that the last one does not need to be maintained. So you have the covenant with Noah made after the flood. You have the covenant made with King David whenever he offers to build God a temple. You have the covenant of the Jews at Mount Sinai when Moses went up, got the Ten Commandments. The first five books of the Bible were written, God's holy law. Covenant theologians believe that each new covenant supplants the old one. So the, the old one is not necessarily uh, important. Why is that important to know today? Covenant theologians believe that there is no such thing as the Jews anymore. That whenever we receive the new covenant of Christ Jesus, that took the place of the old covenant at Mount Sinai. And so they look at language like in Romans that, that we are those who are circumcised in heart. We are the Jews. We have been grafted in. And they say we now are the fulfillment of the old covenant. The old covenant is no longer being protected or observed by God anymore. So there might be people who identify as Jews. They're identifying in something that ended 2,000 years ago when Christ established the New Testament, New Covenant. The people who have a different, the opposite perspective are usually called dispensational believers. They believe that each covenant stands separate from the others. And although they interrelate and they're governed by the same God with the same principles, they believe that God is upholding his covenant with David He's upholding his covenant with Noah. He's upholding his covenant with Moses and the Israelites all at the same time while also making a new covenant with the nations through Christ Jesus. So there are still Jews. There is still uh, a kingdom that has been promised. There are ways in which the old covenant has not yet been fulfilled but will be fulfilled yet. These two things are very much at odds when you look at the modern nation state of Israel. There are a lot of people who look at that and say that is in no way connected to the biblical state of Israel that came before. The Jews are not a legitimate people anymore. They have no right to the land. They have no right to displace those people. This is all unnecessary bloodshed that is on the hands of the Jews who came in as colonizers. And then over against that would be people who say, no, the Jews have a historic claim to the land that was promised to Abraham by God. He's upholding that promise. Um, We've been told throughout the New Testament that Jerusalem, the holy land of Israel, is going to play a, a role in the future revelation of God's kingdom in the last days. And so, no, we need to stand with the Jews. You see how different these two theologies are. One says the Jews are illegitimate. What's going on right now is a holocaust against an innocent people. The other says, no, God's chosen people are the Jews, and while they might do wrong from time to time, God is with them, and they are intimately tied in future revelation of God's plans. So, I'm going to let that hang around for a bit, and you'll probably be able to tell which side of that divide I am on, um, but we need to read the scripture now. So, we're going to go to Obadiah, verse 1. If there's stuff that you don't get, I will explain it when it's all over. Um, one thing to understand that I think is helpful to say before we get into it, anytime it talks about Edom, Esau, Seir, Teman, these are all for the same thing. It's Edom. Okay, Edom is a nation 
that lived that that uh, was southeast of Israel, and I, I'll uh, I'll show you maps of that um, here in a minute. Should I bring that up? Okay. All right, verse one, Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. I thought I had it on my computer, but I, I don't. So we are on page, what page are we on in the Pew Bibles? 1438, thank you. All right. Verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, and ro if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. But would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. 
This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. So this is uh, a chapter of utter destruction upon the Edomites because he details an incident where the Edomites have been party to an invasion of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, being the capital of the, the kingdom of Israel, or at this point, the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah was indeed ransacked in the year 586 BC by the Babylonians. And while it's hardly written down at all, we're going to listen to Psalm 137 here in a bit that seems to say pretty directly that the Edomites were party to that. It seems to me that Obadiah is very clear that the Edomites played a role in the destruction of Jerusalem. He talked about how not only did they enter the gates, not only did they drink and celebrate with the conquerors, but they picked people off as they tried to escape. Now, why does this matter? It's because the Edomites were the closest relatives among all the kingdoms that the Jews had. It's like a brother turning on his own brother. It's like Cain and Abel. Let's look at a couple maps. This is one of uh, just the, the basic geographical area that we're dealing with here. That northern lake that you see there is the, the Galilean Sea where Jesus spent a lot of time. He lived west of there in Galilee. South of Galilee was Samaria. South of Samaria was Judea. You see that larger lake down there, that's the Dead Sea. And then southeast of there, straight south of there is a place called Arabah. Uh, where the Arabs eventually came in. Uh, and uh, a big kingdom underneath that was Edom. So let's go down to the next map, and it should have... You see kingdom of Edom down there in yellow? The borders weren't as firm as it uh, conveys here, but this is generally where they were. Now, the, the area just directly east and southeast of the Dead Sea is the area where they got the most rainfall, where they had the most accessible waters. So that's where they had some cities... The rest of it was just Bedouin herders, wanderers that identified with Esau. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's go to the next map. Actually, let's go back one second. Uh, If you've read the Old Testament, you know that it refers to the Philistines. You'll see where they were in red on the uh, top left. Well, just the western part. You'll see the Moabites lived in the kingdom of Moab. A lot of us, we read Moab, Moabites, we don't know where it is. That's where the Moabites were. North of there was the Ammonites, the kingdom of Ammon. Ammon. And then Aram Damascus came up later and gave uh, David a real hard time and, and following ones. And then you had Phoenician states up above. Okay, now let's, let's go. All right, so that's a topographical map. And so it's, it's, it shows you where north is. It's at the top right. I love this. I I think this is so, and I should say, I didn't, I didn't make it. You know I don't have the skills to make anything like this. I stole these from the Holman Bible Atlas. We're going to have this in the church library. If you ever want to read your Bible and understand it, this is so helpful. Hundreds of maps. So great. And then I also, um, this came in tandem with the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which overlaps, but has a lot of different knowledge as well. So uh, that's, that's the main sources I, I leaned on for this. But you'll see the, the Jordan River is what creates that um, valley. 
and then you have mountain ranges on both sides of the Jordan. So that's actually lower than sea level. You can't tell that from there, but that valley goes below sea level. It's a very low place on the earth. And the upper right hand, that's the southern part of the Dead Sea. And then you see Arabah, and you'll see Edom is mostly on the east side there. It's a very arid region. So the next map is rainfall. Let's go to that one. And you can't see the colors real well, but in the northwest, it's dark green. That's where they get, you know, that's modern-day Lebanon. They, get, they got plenty of rainfall, but as you go southeast, there's less and less. So Edom was a very dry place, a desert, and it was known for red sandstone. Let's go to the next. I think we have, so that, you see how red that is? That's just a piece of the Nubian, um, I forget what the stone is called, but you can actually uh, carve into it kind of easily. They chiseled out a church that's in Petra, where the Christians eventually fled to whenever persecution in Jerusalem got so bad. That's, they, that's a proper church. You walk in, it all used just to be a big slab of rock, and they carved out a beautiful church there. I've seen footage. I, uh, I didn't rip the video. We, some, you should check it out. It's really beautiful. All right, let's go on to the next slide. This is a timeline, and uh, it's, we're not going to be able to see it well enough for you to... Um, appreciate it, but it shows all the different stages in who ruled over this area. So it begins with ancient Israel in the top left, and it has a picture of the temple and, and a king, and then it goes to a Babylonian rule, then Persian rule, the Hellenistic era. The Hasmonean dynasty was the, uh, a Jewish uh, rule when they came back from uh, being uh, in the exile, and then on down the line, it has all these different rulers until you get to the modern-day state of Israel. And if you don't know, in 1948, there was a war of independence in Israel where all these Jews who had tried to get away from Holocaust and pogroms around the world, they'd been moving there for 80 years. The, the local population hated them. They were fighting each other. The, the British had taken over from the Ottomans after World War I, and they said, we're, we're tired of this. We're out of here. They left. There was a war between the two groups. The Jews prevailed, and it's been a state ever since, 1948. But the people who lost didn't just disappear. They went to uh, camps in Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt, and then they also stayed in places that we now call the West Bank and Gaza. And then ever since, there's been terrorism, hatred, war, grotesque, awful things happening. And as I'm going to talk about, over the next few minutes, that goes back thousands of years between these people groups. The next slide is another timeline that just shows all the different rulerships and how long they ruled over the land of Israel. So it begins with the Proto-Cadonite period 4,000 years ago. Then you have the Egyptians ruling over that area. And then that, that blue one at the top is Israel and Judah. That then is the biblical, that's when First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the Psalms, the Prophets, all of that stuff in the Old Testament was written down then or slightly afterwards. The Hasmonean Kingdom, further down blue, was also a Jewish kingdom. The Bar Kokhba Revolt took over for a minute, then they got just trashed by the Romans. And then the Romans renamed the area Palestina. Once the Jews rebelled too many times, they were so angry at the Jews. What the Romans did was they destroyed the second temple. They killed all the Jews in Jerusalem that stood against them and all the Jews in the Bar Kokhba revolt. And then they renamed the area after the enemies of the Jews, the Philistines. You remember the Philistines? 
Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines stood against him for hundreds of years. They never had dominance over the area, but the Romans, to insult the Jews, named it after a minority that they warred with for a time just to say, this land ain't yours anymore. And that's why it's been called Palestine on maps ever since. That's why I don't call it Palestine, because it's meant as an insult to the Jews who did inhabit the land, inherit the land, according to the Bible, through Abraham. Next slide. So these are some notes, uh, important things to know about Edom. We already saw on the map it was located in what is today southwestern Jordan. So the, the root, the origin story of the Edomites, where did they come from? They came from Esau, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. Um, Esau, if you remember, came out. He was red and ruddy and tough. He was, a, he was a hunter. And then Jacob was a guy who lived in tents, but God's blessing was upon Jacob. One day, Jacob tricked him, Esau, into selling him his birthright. He came in. He was starving. And Jacob had been making some uh, stew, some porridge that was red, according to uh, Moses in, in Deuteronomy. And so you have this red man who sold his birthright for red porridge, and then he and his people ended up moving to this very red place with this red Nubian stone. Um, even though they came from the line of Abraham, and they were brethren with the Israelites, they did not worship Yahweh. They worshiped a god called Kaus. Kaus. I've seen it pronounced, well, I haven't heard it pronounced. I've seen it spelled different ways. But the Israelites considered the Edomites closer relations than other the surrounding nations. So when you looked at the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, all these guys, they came from either cousins or close relatives on up the family tree close to Abraham. But none were as close as the Edomites who were the children of Esau. God's blessing followed Jacob, the brother of Esau. That's as close as it got. Even so, I mean, that's, that's what made their enmity so awful. They should have been close. They should have been like this. But instead, they actually hated each other and continue to hate each other today. Um, according to Obadiah 16, they might have even worshipped for a time at the Temple Mount. There are prohi prohibitions against the other surrounding nations going to the Temple, but not the, the Edomites. Whether or not they took them up on that ability, I don't know. And I could have read that passage wrong. I'm not hanging my hat on it. But it's just to say the door should have been open for friendship. But things, things went bad pretty early. The capital city of the kingdom of Edom was a place called Basra. It's one of these cities that's maintained for thousands of years. Modern-day Busiera is built on top of it. They had a mountain stronghold there. So in the, in the book here, it said, um, in Obadiah, it said, uh, The pride of your hearts, this is verse 3, has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? The Edomites were very confident. They'd found these big plateaus to build their their uh, fortress cities on top of that would be very hard to invade. They said, nobody can come get us. That's what uh, Basra was. That's what Taman was. Taman was another walled city on top of a high place. And so Taman uh, was one of the words for Edom here. You'll also remember Job, one of his buddies, was a Temanite. So he was an Edomite, uh, someone from Edom. So uh, the, the whole name of it came from the, a root a Semitic root, meaning red, it, it noted the Nubian sandstone throughout the region. It's also tied to the pottage that Esau ate. I already talked about that. The kingdom was also referred to as Seir, S-E-I-R. That was the name of a mountain that was dominant in the region. So Seir, Edom, Teman, Basra, Esau, all five of these denote the Edomite people. 
Let's go to the next slide. So bad blood goes way back. It says that Jacob and Esau fought in the womb, right? Esau came out first and Jacob was grabbing his heel. The two of them had a lot of drama such that Jacob had to leave the household. When he came back a few years later, it looked like they were going to be buddies, but it didn't work out. Bad blood continued and got worse over the years. As the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, they finally got free and they wanted to, to migrate back northeast to the, to the land of the Canaanites, but the Edomites were in between, their brothers. And so as they were migrating back up to the northeast, they asked the Edomites, hey, can we go through your territory? We won't touch anything. And the Edomites said, no. They weren't interested. They weren't interested in helping their brothers. They, and can you imagine being in the wilderness, vulnerable to the elements, and you have a straight path through, and the people who are in your path say, no, go around. That's what happened. It's recorded in the Bible in, uh, where was that? Numbers, 2021. Um, so, yeah. They remember their, their enemies. So uh, moving on, they went through the era of the judges. Finally, there was a consolidated kingdom under King David. And so he went to war with them. He conquered them. He put a garrison there, and he forced their king, Hadad, into retreat. But that wasn't the end of it. Hadad survived in Egypt. He came back during King Solomon's reign. So on, I didn't think to put it on a map, but southwest of the kingdom of uh, Edom, there was a port. So you have the Gulf of Suez right next to Egypt, where there's a big trading port. But on the other side of what the Sinai Desert, there's another port called the Gulf of Aqaba. And Solomon had that for a while and used that for trade. That's how, part of how they got so wealthy. The Edomites eventually took over that route so that they couldn't have access to that wealth anymore. So, so far you have just economic territorial interests, but things aren't too nasty, right? But eventually... Uh, the king, uh, what's his face, came back, and then uh, things got really bad as after trade was disrupted for a bit. King Amaziah of Judah defeated them in the Valley of Salt a few years later. There were 10,000 survivors of the Edomites. They got them all, took them up on top of a plateau, chased them off, killed 10,000 people by dashing them on the rocks below. Does that sound like racial hatred to you? Things, things got pretty serious. When you're causing 10,000 people, can you imagine such a, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Do you imagine that the Edomites forgot about such a thing? The Judeans didn't forget. The Edomites didn't forget. More battles, more killing, more travesty. The, uh, the Edomites flourished under the Assyrians. You remember the Assyrians were the ones that Jonah, we were dealing with, with Jonah, and they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, but they actually let the Edomites flourish. Lots of trade. They actually became ascendant over the southern kingdom of Judea, but the Assyrians fell apart eventually, and then the Nabataeans moved in. They were an Arabic people from the southeast, and they took over everything east of the Jordan and the Arabah. All that was left was what was on the west, and those guys came to be known as Idumea. Not Edom, but Idumea. Do you see how similar those are? So we're on the, the final slide there with notes on Edom. They, uh, Herod the Great came out of these Idumeans. The Idumeans were uh, uh, the Greek-speaking people. What happened during the Hasmonean dynasty, I'm going to skip uh, one of those notes, but in 110 BC you see that the Hasmonean ruler John Hyrcanus conquered 
and forcibly converted them to being Jews. It's the only time that the Jews ever forced people to convert. We've heard of Muslims. I mean, that's the Muslims' MO, right? Christians did that during Christendom, but the Jews only ever did that to the Idumeans. And it was out of that line, the Idumean line, that then uh, Herod the Great came out of and ruled over the Roman province of Judea. Now, the thing that Obadiah seems to be so mad about is in the year 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, capital of Jerusalem, got overrun by the Babylonians, and the Edomites were the ones who helped them do it. So, that racial hatred of chasing 10,000 of their guys off a cliff and killing them was returned in the overrunning of their capital and the dissolution of their kingdom. Now, what happened after that? Uh, the Jews were flung out across the world, but some stayed in the region. Oh, but before the time of Jesus, I always keep forgetting this point, they came back and reconstructed a second temple, didn't they? But while they were doing this, this is as in Nehemiah and Ezra, they describe there were people around them who did not want them to build. And they were threatening them so that they were building with one hand and held weapons in the other so that they could be on the defense. And there's a good question to be asked. How many of these guys that were threatening to kill them were Edomites? We know that there were people from the south of them that were threatening them. On through the ages, Jews did live in the region, but it was always a tense relationship with locals. And then whenever the Zionist movement began uh, 150 years ago, when Jews started returning, locals hated them, did not want to make room for them. And then I've already recapitulated that history. So why is it relevant today? This is the next slide. The current prime minister of Israel is a man named Benjamin Netanyahu. He's fought for the Israeli Defense Force in the past. He is a battle-hardened man. Um, he is currently justifying their military intervention in Gaza. If you don't know it, Gaza is a small strip of land that, that Israel had possessed, and then they got out of, in I think, 2005, let the Palestinians run it themselves. They immediately elected Hamas to be their rulers. Hamas invaded them a little over a month ago, killed over 1,000 civilians, very intentionally targeted uh, people who were not combatants. Uh, so the, Israel, the Israelis have now invaded Gaza. They've cut it in half. They bombed a lot of places. They killed a lot of civilians. Uh, the, the explanation there being that Hamas hides behind civilians, uses them as human shields. People in favor of Palestine say, no, no, no. They just like killing civilians. Uh, but anyway, in, in justifying all this, Benjamin Netanyahu a couple weeks ago quoted Deuteronomy 25:17, which says, Remember the sins of the Amalekites. And in a time of peace, wipe them out. That's directly in the Bible. So he is summoning this racial hatred recorded in the Bible to justify wiping out at least palace, uh, Hamas combatants. You see the direct overlap here, quoting the Bible to justify modern military intervention. So if Edomites are to be remembered similarly to the Amalekites, and we're going to read a passage from Ezekiel here in a minute that, that directly draws that connection. And modern-day Palestinians are considered descendants of Edom and Amalek. It is not hard for religious hardliners to justify killing all the Palestinians. Which is what some people claim is, is what's happening right now. They say well, they're not just killing the combatants, they're, they aim to kill all of them. They're, and of course, some people are shaking their heads at me. I'm a fan, uh, okay, I'm going to be very clear. I'm a, I'm a Zionist sympathizer. My sympathies have always been with the Jews, always been with Israel. And that's not to say I don't care at all about Palestinians. I do. But I, you know, you don't, 
well, no, I don't want to go down that road just yet. So if Christians interpret these scriptures as covenant theologians, there are no more Jews, God's not maintaining his covenant with them anymore, then this is not at all seen as fulfilling a biblical mandate. Obadiah's words were already answered when the Idumeans were taken over and converted. Instead, what we're seeing right now is a, a genocide, an ethnic cleansing. But if you are a covenant theologian, not a co if you're a dispensationalist as I am, then what you see is God has been active with the Jewish people. Now, that's not to say that God is happy with everything that the state of Israel is doing. I saw a headline just this morning. There were civilians trying to get back up north to their homes during a time of a ceasefire, and supposedly, reportedly, IDF soldiers fired on them and killed them, non-combatants. If they did that, that's evil. That's wrong. I'm against that. But you can acknowledge bad on the side you sympathize with while still sympathizing with them, okay? My wife doesn't do everything right. I'm a big fan of my wife, okay? This is, it's, it's silly if you go, wow, you like, you like Israel. Well, you just think they do everything great. No, no. I just think God is on their side. I think they are God's chosen people. I think God will continue to work through them. Well, in Romans 11, y'all remember going through Romans? It says that all the nation of Israel will be saved. There is a prophecy about all of them coming into the fold of God and being regrafted in. I, I entirely believe that. But if we don't stand with them, if we don't pray for them, if we don't love them, then I think we're against God. Now, that doesn't have to be you're going to hell because all of us, our hearts are inclined against God. But even so, I think we have to wake up. I became a fan of Israel before I was even a believer. I just read military history. If you read the military history of the Zionist movement and how they created the state of Israel, I don't know how you can't believe that God has been active with them. There is no other nation on earth like them, with no other story like them. And I know we don't like bloodshed, but it is really hard to deny that God is active with the Israelis now. Let's, uh, let's look at a couple more scriptures that talk about the Edomites. First one is Psalm 137, verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Of course, this psalm is the one that ends in such anguish. Blessed is the man who dashes their babies against a rock. Yeah, I hate that one too. Ezekiel chapter 35, the whole chapter is against the Edomites, but here's just a few verses. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Remember, that was the big mountain in, in Edom. Prophesy against it and said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins and you will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So it goes on from there. Go home and read it. We are not Jews. You and I are followers of the new covenant of Christ Jesus. And that means we worship the same God, but differently. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I find Galatians really helpful in discerning that. I find Romans really helpful in discerning that. The whole New Testament is very helpful. But as I understand it, God has not forsaken his covenant with the Jews. The Jews maintain throughout history and have purposes to the end of being finally saved. Christians, meanwhile, have another way of following God, the way of peace, the way of suffering, the way of forbearance. I'm going to make the case that the role of the Jews is not the way of peace or of forbearance, although suffering has accompanied them throughout history. 
I'm going to say that the role of Israel is to be God's militant covenant people until Christ comes again in glory. I see that throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. The Jews are going to do what they're going to do. I don't, as a believer in Christ Jesus, a follower in Christ Jesus, no part of me is, is inclined to say the Jews should do this or the Jews should do that. I'm going to say they shouldn't kill civilians, but that's not as a Christian. That's just like as a decent human being. But in the meantime, how ought Christians to act? I get concerned about Christians who seem bloodthirsty for genocide against the Palestinians. I don't think that's the right place for us to be. I don't like that. Kill them all, turn the ground to glass. I, I don't like that. I, I don't think that's where Christ calls his people to be. Did Christ have enemies? Did he have ethnic ed enemies that he engaged? Remember the Samarians? The Samaritans? They were ethnic enemies of the Jews. And Jesus, he engaged them and he loved them. Not only did he love them, he died for them. And not only did he die for them, he died for us, we who were born enemies of Christ. Amen? So as we determine our role in modern geopolitics, as believers, I believe it is our role to pray for people, to love our enemies, I'm directly quoting from Jesus there, and to even die for them. That's the biblical mandate. Even Palestinians, even Arabs, even Muslims, I don't like any of them. I don't, but Christ calls me to love them, to pray for them, to even die for them. Am I making sense? Am I sounding like the same Bible you open when you read it? That's, that's exactly what I'm going for here. I don't want to do it, but Christ doesn't call me to do what I want to do. He calls me to be saved. You and I are not called to fight or at least not in a worldly way. Remember, our enemies are not a flesh and blood, right? Our enemies are the forces, the powers, the principalities. The way we do holy warfare is we pray, we love, we die. I think the other way we love God is by loving his people, standing by his covenant people, the Jews. And so I, I, I wanted to end with a couple quotes about the Jews kind of explaining why I, I like them. One is by Samuel Clemens, otherwise known as Mark Twain. Y'all have heard of that guy, right? He said, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but one quarter of one percent of the human race. It suggests a nebulous puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contribution to, contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also very out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greeks and Romans followed and made a vast noise, and they were gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now and have vanished. The Jews saw them all, survived them all, 
and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening in his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert but aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jews. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? To my mind, the answer is God. A quote I already gave y'all before from this guy, Charles Krauthammer. He said, Israel is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. To me, that means something. Another quote I like about the Jews, I didn't have a slide for it, says, the Jews are just like any other people, only more so. If we've reached the conclusion of this time with me and you're thinking, my pastor is just a blind supporter of Israel. He wants us to just bless them and be happy with everything they do. That is not what I've said. I want you to pray for them. I want you to support them in their righteousness. But we should always stand against evil. And if they do evil, yes, condemn evil. But just fighting to exist, it's not evil. How ought we to live with Obadiah? Covenant theologians would say, oh, it's just a spiritual, larger message about, you know, God being angry with the people who stand against him. I would urge you to consider that maybe what we're seeing right now historically is the outworking of the Obadiah prophecy. That this ancient hatred has been carried forward into the present and it has biblical implications. I would urge you to consider that when you open your Old Testament, it's not about something that's canceled and gone and has no more power over us anymore, but that the Old Testament is a firm and reliable witness about who Christ is and who he calls us to be and prophecies that are still happening right now. As I open my Bible, brothers and sisters, I find a document that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword and sure to save even today. I pray you may be blessed with the same reading.